Hello, music fans. Welcome to episode 103 of Love That Album podcast. Morris has returned from his fact-finding journey at the 2017 Montreal Jazz Festival. While seeing many wonderful musicians perform, one of the highlights was a singer-songwriter called Sienna Dahlin. She and her 10-piece band were performing outdoors as the sun was setting in front of hundreds of enthused listeners. Her vocals and songs were hypnotic. Morris knew that he had to do two things following that gig. Pick up a copy of her new album, Ice Age Paradise, and invite Sienna onto the podcast to talk about the album and her music in general. Both of those things were accomplished, and the results are what you are about to hear. They discuss early album collections, winter, jazz, the working musician in 2017, and the inspiration of family to her music. Sienna's artist and songwriter father, Lane, also joins in to talk a little about his work. For his Album I Love segment, Eric returns to talk about singer Carla Bozulik and her interpretation of the Willie Nelson album, Red-Headed Stranger. So, sit back, think of Canadian winter, and welcome to the Ice Age Paradise. literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to episode 103 of the Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. If you've been listening to the show before and you wondered where the hell was I for episode 102, I was traveling. I'd like to give a huge thanks to my good friend and work colleague, Mr. David Blom, for holding down the fort so excellently with his show about the vines. And if you enjoyed what David did, the good news is that he'll be doing some more fill-in episodes somewhere down the track. Not sure when, but uh, David has said that he's up for it again and I'm happy to give him the time and the space and the podcasting bandwidth. So you might be asking, why was I not doing a program? Where was I? What the hell was I doing? Well, it's actually sort of relevant to this month's episode. I went with my family overseas to uh, spend some time in Canada and a little bit in New York as well. 
Before I sort of go talking about the main purpose of my trip overseas, I'd just like to send a quick shout out and thanks to the many wonderful people that I got to meet while staying in Toronto and also in New York. The podcasting world is so magnificent and all these wonderful people who I'd done shows with or I was a fan of their show all turned up to meet us and greet us while uh, my family and I were on our uh, travels in July. So a big shout out, first of all, to Will Smith and his wonderful family. Will is the host of the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Please give that show a listen. It's one of my absolute favorite podcasts. If you're a fan of genre of cinema, then you really need to be listening to Will. A big shout out as well to John Ross of the Feed My Ears Facebook group. Truly the gentleman and also a film and music scholar, an absolute is wonderful to actually meet you face to face. Nathan Budenso, who's also his right hand man in the Feed My Ears group, he gave us a whole day to go looking in the art museum together in uh, Toronto. That was fantastic. Scott Clickers of the Married with Clickers podcast. Mike White of the Projection Booth came from Detroit to Toronto to meet up with us. And, and another exciting thing was finally getting to meet the host of the alternate episodes of Love That Album, Eric Reanimator himself, the man who gives us a lot of knowledge and a lot of enjoyment through his album I Love segments on the main shows and the compilation edition of Love That Album. So I got to meet the very man who co-hosts my show with me. Nice to actually be in the same room with all you people. You treated us like royalty. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. And also, finally, I should give a shout out to Frank Santo Padre, the co-host of Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast while we're in New York. He took us out to lunch and that was just absolutely wonderful to get to meet him and chat with him about all sorts of things about his endeavors about film and uh, what it's like working with Gilbert Gottfried a really interesting wonderful time that was had by all I have this sneaking suspicion like I've forgotten someone if so please please forgive me but I genuinely enjoyed everyone who I got to meet up with after knowing them through podcasting or Facebook circles of relevance to this program though the main reason we went overseas we went to the Montreal Jazz Festival which was something that I attended First of all, back in 1996, and it took me 21 years to get there again, but it was so worth it. I had a wonderful time, got to see a lot of performers, got to see a couple of heroes of mine, one in Stanley Clark and one in Ravi Coltrane. And I got to see a lot of acts who I didn't actually know who they were before they started, and I became an instant fan. And one of those acts who I got to see, who I'm now going to be a lifelong devotee to, is the guest on this month's program. Her name is Sienna Darling. Now, Sienna will give you a little bit of a background of her own music uh, as we get into the interview. Suffice to say that I got to hear Sienna under incredible circumstances. The shows at the Montreal Jazz Festival, there's a bunch of them that are held indoors, but there's also a lot of shows that are held outdoors. And it was an evening, or it was approaching evening, just as the sun was going down and Sienna was playing on one of the large stages in an area in Montreal called the Place des Arts, which is like the arts and entertainment district. And she was playing with her 10 or 11 piece ensemble on stage some of the musicians were the traditional sort of uh, jazz instrumentation you know drums and double bass and piano and the like but there was also a string section and I'm certain that there's a lot of you out there who heard a musician for the first time and just really fell head over heels with some special quality that you couldn't necessarily define but for me listening to Sienna Darlin there was grace in her performance there was just this intangible 
incredible beauty about what it was that she was presenting in songwriting with her voice, with the dynamics that were going around between the band members. And we speak a lot about the arrangements that her bass player had gone and written for the string section, in fact, for the whole band. So I, I just want you to listen to what it is that she has to say and listen to the music clips that we present. This is in covering her latest album, came out, I think, late in 2016, called Ice Age Paradise. We speak a fair bit about that, but we also touch on some of her earlier work and some of the other projects that she's done. Uh, also, a really lovely thing to have happen as part of the interview was when we were speaking, her father, Lane Darlin, was also present. And Lane is also quite a good songwriter and a magnificent fine artist. So uh, we get to speak to Lane a little bit about his work. And there's a song on the album, which we talk about, called Venezia. And Lane composed that. And it was a really beautiful thing to hear the two of them duet on the CD. Unfortunately, Lane wasn't performing with Sienna in Montreal. But if you listen to the CD, Ice Age Paradise, it's just a lovely thing to hear father and daughter duet on this gorgeous song. And Sienna goes and explains in the interview what her motivation was for recording her father's song. And it's really quite touching. So I'm going to stop blathering at this point. I really hope that you enjoyed the interview that I have with Sienna and Lane. After the interview, you'll hear Eric Reanimator's excellent album I Love segment. And this time around, he's decided to go for uh, an album by a performer I didn't know anything about called Carla Bozulik. I hope I'm getting that pronounced correctly. Uh, she's done a really lovely interpretation of the Willie Nelson album, Red-Headed Stranger, and Willie actually appears on a few tracks on the album. So have a listen to what Eric has to say about that album. And I'll come back after that to uh, close off the show. So enjoy my chat with Sienna and Lane Darling. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. episode 103 of Love That Album podcast and I have the great pleasure on the other end of a Skype connection to be speaking with Canadian singer, songwriter, composer, jazz educator and probably a million and one other things that we haven't sort of worked out yet. Sienna Darlin, welcome to the program, Sienna. Thanks so much, Maurice, for having me. First of all, congratulations on uh, the release of your latest album, Ice Age Paradise. I first got to hear the album as a result of uh, your performance at the 2017 Montreal Jazz Festival. It was very exciting for me to be able to travel all the way to the other side of the world and then mm -hmm. get to uh, hear your music amongst a bunch of other really wonderful artists. And I completely fell in love with what I heard. We'll come to your current music shortly, but I'd love to know something about your background and how you came to do all the wonderful sort of stylistic things that you do now. You, you nominally go and say that you do hybrid of jazz and folk music. 
your earlier releases are quite different to Ice Age Paradise. So I really want to discuss the evolution as well. But let's start at the beginning. So what was it that you recall first hearing that made you fall in love with music in general? Whoa, that's a big question. When I was young, I used to listen to a lot of Top 40 radio, you know, whatever was at our disposal, essentially. And I guess I used to listen to what my parents would listen to at home, that being Beatles. Shadows. Yeah, my dad's here with me. The Shadows. Uh, Cliff Richard. Cliff Richards. Uh, the Everly Brothers. Elvis. I don't know. Who else is it? Lonnie Mack. Oh, yeah. Big Lonnie. hero of mine, yeah. Are you? He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I loved him. So lots of like blues, but also beautiful harmonies and uh, just great songwriting. Jim Crochet mm-hmm. also was a, an album we had. Yeah, so I mean, that's when I was young, 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 I guess. And as a teenager, I was, you know, I was into Brian Adams and Corey Hart and these guys that were popular <laughs> at the time, you know, like, I'm not ashamed to admit it, you know, but I wasn't so much, I wasn't one of these like hippie kids that was into the doors. And I mean, even the doors were a bit old by then, but, you know, when I was a teenager, but I had some friends that were were into them and the who and things like that and uh, i don't know and led zeppelin and stuff i just didn't i didn't smoke pot i guess until i was much older <laughs> so you know didn't go with the terrain so how do you make the connection going from a lot of those pop influences to effectively doing what you're doing now where was the jump considerable amount of, of what i do was kind of folk influenced you know i mean the, the idea of, of storytelling and, and songwriting is certainly something that I, that i explore in my music but I guess when I was deciding to go to school to, to study music, I had been taking classical piano and things like that. And I played saxophone in a concert band. And I had all these kinds of influences and styles that I was into, but I didn't really want to pursue classical music at a university level. And I had started to delve into jazz a little bit because there was a small jazz band in town that the same guy who ran the concert choir also ran the jazz band. And he was a good friend of my dad's and his name is Lan Lawrence, you know, and so I joined the the little jazz big band and I, I joined a, a, a jazz choir. I got a taste of swing music, I guess, and vocal jazz at that time and thought, well, if I can study jazz in school, maybe I'll do that. And but I wasn't singing it at all. That I mean, singing was a real kind of thing that I discovered I could do at a late point in my life. I mean, I was already graduating from high school before I got a, like a solo in the play, you know, and oh, well, that's that's easier than that's not easier, but it's less nerve wracking than having to play piano in front of people at a recital, you know, or, and uh, so that was kind of a revelation for me to realize that I could sing too. So really, it just sort of unfolded from those early influences into these jazz programs that I started to get myself involved with. Yeah, and from there, I just, you know, one thing led to another, like a, it was like a chain reaction, and then I decided I wanted to do a bachelor's degree in jazz performance. I moved to Montreal and took a bunch of time off of that degree to write music and play with different types of bands and to tour around the world. And then I moved to Toronto and did a master's degree in the same vein, in the same milieu, because that's all I knew how to do, really, and continued on with it. And that's It's still there with me, and I'm enjoying it. Con 
concentrating for a little bit on the new album on Ice Age Paradise. The songs to me is just so beautifully arranged and given that you're using a string section this becomes more formal than just arranging for a small traditional jazz ensemble or, or rock ensemble for that matter. Now you've listed a fellow called Andrew Downing, your double bass player, as the fellow who wrote the arrangements for the string section. Did you ever have to convey what you wanted? Did you have sounds in your head for those string arrangements? Did you have to convey that to Andrew? This is what I'd like, you just need to put it down on paper. Or did you just play him the songs on guitar and piano and say, right, I trust you to come up with something beautiful? Yeah, it was basically the latter scenario. You know, he arranged the entire album. In fact, he arranged the horns and the rhythm section and the strings. So he, for 10 musicians, he arranged that music. He and I had played together on many occasions, actually. He played on my previous album, Vergla, as well. And we'd played live before, we'd done some touring before, and I think he just really knew my music well. He was certainly aware of the vibe that I was going for. I recorded all the songs in a very raw fashion on guitar and piano and sent them to him. And he just did a great job of embellishing the music with these instruments rather than burying it, I find. Like he kind of enveloped the songs and just and brought out the best of them, I guess, uh, while adding some of his own ideas in terms of counter lines and, uh, and if, on a few occasions, some extra, you know, some expanded sections and that thing, sort of thing, some solos here and there. But essentially it's, he just took the songs in their, in their raw state and, and uh, tried to envision a 10-piece group playing them and went from there. Now the thing that's amazing to me is I saw like a little video on YouTube which it looked like it was a, a promo thing for crowdfunding and it said that you'd recorded the album in two days which for an album that's so layered and so nuanced in terms of its performance it seems incredible to me that this was all recorded within such a short period of time but I'm sure that the wider story is, is something different so how long did it take you to compose these songs how long did it take Andrew to make the arrangement how much work did it take to get the actual recording done so quickly well a couple of those songs i'd had around for about five years already i guess before i decided to put them on the album so i guess you could say the process started then the arrangements i believe he took about six months to do the arrangements that he was doing other projects no i don't even think it took that long i think he did them in, in three or four months I mean, he was busy teaching and arranging for his own groups and stuff like that. But uh, I think he's the type of guy that when he sits down to do it, he just like, he just does it. You know what I mean? And he, he sent me a couple of versions to listen to, you know, just through MIDI with Finale, which is a software program that everyone uses. And, uh, you know, it's hard to get a real sense of what the music will sound like when it's being generated by these internal sampled instruments. But I already knew that it was going to be a really wonderful sound. And initially, I, I kind of I said to him, why don't we do, you know, some tunes with trios, some with the quartet, some with, you know, tans, you know, kind of mix it up like that. He kind of just said, you know what, I think we should just make it one unified package and we should, I'll just do my best to leave enough room for there to be breathing space in these songs so that we aren't overwhelmed by this many musicians on every track. I said, okay, and took his word for it. And that's what resulted. So, you know, from that, I guess you could go back five years and then and then tack on, you know, a couple of rehearsals plus the a couple of months to arrange the stuff. And then two days, yes, one day to put the bed tracks down. And I ended up singing ghost vocals on all of those tracks so that the guys had something to play with. And we recorded that music in the engineer's loft 
rather than going into a studio because it costs less. I had a very, very small grant for that section of things. In fact, for the entire project. I mean, I spent thousands of dollars out of my pocket, but I just wanted to make sure that it wouldn't be too expensive uh, because it can really add up. And um, so we were well rehearsed. And so we put the bed tracks down plus the vocals, which I intended to change most of later on and ended up keeping most of those initial vocal tracks. And then the next week, I think, the strings and horns went in and recorded their parts on top of what we had done in the first session. And I wasn't even there for that. I had, I was, I don't know where I was. I couldn't be there for that session. So, but Andrew had, had made the arrangements and he was conducting. So I, I had full faith in him that he'd be able to navigate through the whole, through the entire project with ease. And uh, he did. And then we, you know, I put harmonies on after the fact. And there was a, a, a guitarist named Kevin Bright who came in and uh, he plays on Boat Afloat and Ocean. You're gone is measured by the weight of your armor your eyes are lightning in a storm our destiny is flailing like a flag that lost its honor bold afloat an ocean sails atone Boat afloat an ocean sails a tone. And that's the only track, in fact, where we ended up taking out uh, most of the strings and horns and replacing those parts with uh, different stringed instruments that he was multi-tracking. So we've got baritone guitar, I think there's a bit of banjo in there, some nylon string, you know, like... He's just an incredible musician, and so he was he was really the only guy, I think, that, that did any overdubs for us, uh, aside from my own harmonies, and my dad, who came in and sang backups with me. Maurice, uh, you, you could me. say, Maurice, you could say it took one whole extra day just to do me. <laughs> <laughs> so all the rest of the album done in one day, but they needed to get your bit right, Lane. Yeah, it, it was a challenge, I'll tell you. <laughs> as long as you've come into the conversation now, I might as well ask the question. I wanted to sort of go over a few of the songs and some other parts of the progression, but tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, you appear on the album Singing with Your Daughter on a song called Venezia, which you composed. Soft moonlit night Gentle breeze upon songwriting background well it's you know just off the cuff it's nothing i ever studied for uh, i'm a visual artist more than a, a performing artist but i i really actually started playing when i was quite young and i was with a, i think when i was about 13 i was with a group of people that were probably in their 40s doing 1920s 30s 40s swing mm. So I was playing rhythm guitar with that group. And so I, I really think I probably started playing music before I started doing the visual thing. But the writing, 
only happened to me in about 1986-87 when I had gone to Italy in 1986. That's where Venezia came from, from that trip. And after that, I just started writing and just letting stuff happen. After a few years, I didn't write anymore. And actually, I wrote two songs this past winter, and I hadn't written anything since perhaps 1990 or something like that. So it's been a long time. It's, it's helter-skelter all over the place. And has it gone and inspired your creative juices once again? Do you think, oh, this is good. Two new songs, I think I'm going to now write an album's worth of material. It's inspiring, Maurice, but I think at my age, it's also slightly daunting. It makes me wonder sometimes if I shouldn't just shut up and let my daughter do the rest of it. (laughs) I enjoy doing it, but I have to really sit down and really think on it before something will happen. Or I have an idea and it takes me a long time because I'm a, uh, as far as a guitar player goes, I'm, I'm pretty basic. And there's stuff I can hear in my head that I can't put down musically because I can't write music. And so it's a little daunting, but it's fun to do. That's the only reason I do it. It's just for the fun of it. No better reason, I think. The results for everyone to hear, Venezia, is an absolutely gorgeous song, a a highlight of the album. How did you actually come to decide to do the song on the album, Sienna? Well, I was going to say, actually, that my dad, I think, was my very first real inspiration. You know, I I was influenced, of course, before that, but I grew up listening to my dad play around campfires at family reunions and at dances. And, you know, eventually we were singing together and I was performing his, his tunes that he wrote, as he explained in the mid 80s it was just a it was always so much fun for me to come back home and do that with him and and we even went and did a little folk festival and you know and went to the peony in vancouver and stuff like that and we you know we, we did it up and i thought you know one of these days i really need to record one of his songs because they're kind of just sitting on the back burner back burner not doing anything you know we know them and people we know know them but no one else knows them and it's a shame and there's a whole slew of really great songs that he wrote and and so i i don't think i should stop at venezia i think i need to record a few more of them so that was one of the major reasons that i did it i guess to be honest too i mean i lost my mother four years ago and i lost her suddenly and i had no warning and i thought this can just this will happen this could happen again and when something like that occurs you just you know, you regret and you think, how can I do this better the second time around, perhaps? You know, you've got a parent left. I thought it would be a real shame if, if I didn't somehow, you know, honor his music. So that was part of the impetus, I guess, in, in recording that song. There's a tune for my for my mom on the album, too, dedicated to her, and the, the entire album is dedicated to her. So, so yeah, it's a real kind of a, a family affair, I guess, this, this project. I mean, Venezia is, of course, as you said, about Italy. But uh, a lot of the songs that my dad wrote have a lot to do with the area of, of Canada where we were living and where he grew up and where I grew up in the Peace River. So if you've never been to that part of the world, at least you can sort of visit it through his music, I'd say. Long-time listeners to the podcast know that I absolutely love a song that sounds cinematic. That doesn't necessarily mean it's potential movie soundtrack material, although you know it can be. But <laughs> music that presents images in your mind as you know when you're closing your eyes and 
there's something about much of the material that I hear on Ice Age Paradise that evokes what I'd call that cinematic feel. And do you ever compose songs in a way to evoke images in your mind? Do you ever think oh, this would work well in a film that had images like this? And for that matter, film composition be something that you'd be interested in? I hear what you're saying. I think so much of this music would, would be paired with visuals easily. <laughs> you know, one, one would really... Uh, embellish the other i think that no i mean when i wrote the music uh, of course uh, there's always a lot of imagery and i try to look around and and observe in detail and when i write i guess probably some of that comes from having had a, a father who's a visual artist you know who mm. used to talk about uh, seeing life on an angle is one of his quotes and i've never uh, never forgotten that I've quoted him many times throughout my life so i guess the quote-unquote visual aspect is there for that reason I didn't hear in, in their rawest form, I didn't hear the music being cinematic in any way, but certainly once, you know, the music was arranged and recorded, that's one of the things that came to mind. I really love music that takes you on a journey, though, I can say that. I mean, Radiohead is, is a band that's influenced me a lot, that I've, I've loved for so long. And there's so, there's so much depth in what they do. You know, it's, the, it's like the, just the perfect music for any setting, but I've always loved listening to Radiohead in a moving vehicle, just soaring through the countryside over mountains, you know, or, or through through valleys. And, you know, it just you just feel like you're really being transported somewhere. And so some of that, I guess some of that influence has come through and, and makes me think about like the bigger picture. And, and I guess the word epic could be used. However, I don't really like to use that word too much but uh yeah there's the essence of epic is there and, and it lends itself well to cinematics i guess and and uh yeah as soon as you have strings and oboe and everything in there i mean it's, it's really hard not to to hear this music being paired with film and and i i would love that of course i think it would i think it would be a great accompaniment Make i gotta say that the actual title song of the album made me think this song belongs in fargo across the street of the sign Lost his way, but tricks on display. Now he's dead. This fog carried him away. So far away. <laughs> a lot of films nowadays, maybe even, I guess, in going to cinema's history, can have big orchestral scores that sound overly grand and overly pompous. But the music in Fargo, it's gentle at times and becomes powerful without being overly bludgeoning you. It, it, yeah. it has a subtlety, it has a nuance. And Ice Age Paradise just sounded very much, it had that wintry feel, and we'll come back to that yeah. in a few minutes. I think some, like, someone wrote about it and, and described it as being glacial, glacial somehow. So I, and I liked that a lot. I liked that image of, you know, an iceberg or something. <laughs> well, it's kind of a glacier. A little, maybe a little bit prophetic in the sense that was it the next spring after the release that you went and spent a month in Iceland? Yeah. And yeah. actually a, a small video came out of that. Yes, that's and true. And so that was, yeah. yeah. And the, the title track was written in Nelson, B.C., which is actually where I was born. And that little town is nestled in a valley within the Rocky Mountains. And, you know, it's gorgeous, you know, and, and they get a lot of snow in the wintertime. And it got 
super dark as soon as the sun went behind those mountains, you know, and, and that was a pivotal moment in my life too, just a year before my mom died, but things were already starting to brew and rumble <laughs> under the surface and uh, in my personal life, and so I think everything just kind of exploded from that point on. You just mentioned that you were in Iceland and a film clip was made there. Was that where the song Drifting Daydream, was that the, the little clip that, that was that shot in Iceland? It was shot in Iceland, yes. So, right. So that's a nice segue because I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about that song and its structure. It's a perfect example of the arrangement that I've been talking about and the build-up that Andrew came up with. Uh, you know, the guitar in the beginning going between what sounds to me, I think it's like a, a G major to G minor chord. Um, and it starts off with a little bit of light cymbal playing, then strings coming in and then brass. And it all sounds like they're responding to a call that's been put out by the guitar. They're all coming in one by one. The song builds up its intensity until the end in sort of to me a very Jeff Buckley-ish sort of way and we get the fade out and then it's just the guitar it's on its own again with those two chords was this something that Andrew came up with the idea or did you say I want this build up and this fade out it just there's something that's so beautiful about the arrangement of the song yes you know the form of the song and all the chords and the melody and all that stuff were written before that that's the way the song went when I would play it alone uh, so I think it just becomes bigger when you add all of those those instruments um, the way he brought them in of course was up to him and uh, I did say to him you know it's, it's hard to bring out this this feeling of sounds falling over one another and having this kind of maze like kind of spinning sort of shadows and almost falling into a, a trance kind of feeling when you're just playing the song by yourself on a guitar kind of thing so um i said is there any way to kind of tear up the instruments you know kind of uh and it's sort of a pyramid effect and and he said yeah we can definitely do that i mean it also changes meter there too it goes into more of a, a six eight feel from a four four feel so that also helps in churning the stew a little bit, you know, and churning everything up. But I wanted it there to be a sort of destabilizing feel to that section. And, and that's certainly what he came up with. So. seeing you with a full ensemble but I'm sure it gets a little bit either costly or 
or just impractical for you to be able to sort of always tour with such a big group so do you find that you're doing many shows by yourself or with just one other performer how do you strip those arrangements back if you do i haven't tried stripping them back yet and as of late i've been playing i've been singing a lot of sort of a guest with other groups so i haven't actually been playing the material in a solo fashion either but i would like to of course i'd like to play the music as much as i can so one idea i did have was to try and break the, the group in half and just tour with a rhythm section plus maybe three of the string horn players and I'm not sure which what instrumentation that would be and which ones I would cut out and keep but it's something to think about but the one thing that has that I have been doing with the music and I'm, I'm just so happy that this has happened is that the I guess it was back in December a big band that I sing with called the Orchestre National de Jazz de Montréal adapted most of the songs from Ice Age Paradise for big band wow yes so they took all of the arrangements they didn't really change the arrangements but they substituted oboe for for trombone and cellos for saxophones and, and so now we have Ice Age Paradise in big band format. How did that feel to you to be able to hear that these songs that you'd gone and created shaped in the studio and then someone else came along and just adapted it in a different way? Was it exciting for you? Was it just another day in the office? How, how did it feel? Oh, I was so happy. I, I really didn't think it would happen but I'm very good friends with the director of that band and you know when we were performing her suite already and I just kind of slipped in the idea of like wouldn't it be fun if this could happen and I guess she just she had enough pull and and the, the guys in the band liked the music enough that she kind of just said okay who wants this song who wants this song who wants this song and about three or four of them in the band adapted the music and so I was so happy to be able to perform it that way and and when I'm up there singing I've only done it twice now uh, we just did it recently a few a week ago in a park in, in Montreal it felt a lot better the second time I think the first time everyone was still trying to get used to the music and we hadn't had much time to rehearse and I mean, that's going from like 10 musicians to 20 musicians. So it's hard enough getting 10 people to all play together, let alone 20, you know, guys who are mostly used to playing straight ahead jazz, big band music or jazz music, not with the exception of a few who've done, you know, who've been sidemen for pop projects and things like that. But it, but they really love it. They really enjoyed the, the music and, and got right into it. And uh, yeah, so so I, I just, I, I had a guest doing it. That was great. In the CD booklet for your previous album, Vigla. Have I pronounced that correct? Yeah, sure. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> um, so, in the CD booklet for Vigla, you describe the circumstances under which it was written and describe it as a wintry sort of album. And you've already gone and said that your music had been referred to as glacial. Mm -hmm. Even before reading that, I felt the same way about listening to Ice Age Paradise, you know, with the title track and songs like Cold and Your Eyes. Still, much of it sort of has on the new album feel of melancholy that's not necessarily on Vigla and I sort of maybe I've got too much time to think about this but I was sort of seeing that maybe the two sides of winter and Vigla sounds to me almost like a day album and Ice Age Paradise sounds like a nighttime album when dark hits and maybe dark thoughts hit you See the future drawing the horizon quick turn the page give me an eraser arm me with a taser quick must
the end. Am I overthinking this? Is there something yeah. to that? Uh, I mean, uh, no one's ever described it that way before, but I think you're onto something there. Uh, yeah, I think Vergla has much. It's, it's almost like seeing the, you know, the sunshine coming through an icicle or something. You know, that glittery kind of light on the snow, sort of crispy, sort of winter, sunny day kind of vibe. And and Ice Age, you know, yeah, you feel like you're in the heart of winter where there's not a lot of sunlight and you you're just kind of trying to get through the night, kind of vibe to it. Yeah. A lot of the material is more major key and maybe a little bit, not exactly boisterous, but a little bit more buoyant. You know, song, even a song like Jaded Heart, which really is not a positive sort of thing, but it, it, it does sound like a, musically like a happy song. And, you know, Jaded Heart and Stray, and although, mind you, the, um, the final song on the album, Carrie, does sound like it's a precursor of things to come. We, yes. We've approached the evening, right? The next album, that's the night time. That, that's what that sounds to me. have come out let's <laughs> 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 pour another scotch oh, yeah. Yeah, yes it's a it's an album for drinking scotch too i think someone put it on <laughs> digging out the booze now i've listened to four albums that are in your name including okay. one with a fellow called joel miller and so i listened to the album that you made with joel called dream cassette which is a very different proposition to vigla or ice age paradise and there's you know, more of a, I don't know, a combination of maybe some of the Radiohead pop that you were talking about before and a little bit more of a jazzy pop feel mm-hmm. and songs like Streamlined are certainly a lot more up-tempo than anything over the last couple of albums. Joel Miller and how did you come to work with him? Uh, Joel Miller is, uh, in fact, the husband of the uh, the conductor of the Orchestre Nationale de Jazz that I was speaking of. Okay. They're both saxophonists, in fact. She's an alto sax player, and, and he's a tenor sax player, principally. They both trade off clay soprano and other things. But um, Joel is a guy I've known for many, many years. He composed all of the music on Dream Cassette, and it was really his brainchild. I wrote the lyrics to the songs, most of them, anyway. And, uh, yeah, I guess we've known each other since the mid 
mid-90s, late to mid-90s. He's a, he's a prominent jazz saxophonist in Montreal and, and in Canada, and he, he tours a lot, and, and uh, he's kind of known for his quirky writing and uh, approach to, to, to music making in general. So does he have much of a back catalogue? Has he been keeping himself busy over the years? Is he more of a live performer? Has he recorded much? He's recorded quite a bit, actually, yeah. Um, I don't know how many albums, but gosh, there must be at least six albums of his out there. He, he's written, you know, sometimes he does more of a sort of, for lack of a better word, world word, world music kind of thing with the Cuban musicians. And he wanted Dream Cassette to be kind of his response to his youth, I guess. He wanted the 80s to come through a little bit in the, in the music. And, and so you get some of that vibe on Streamline, the songs referred to there. For me, it doesn't really sound much like an 80s album. I think it's just, it's just Joel. It's Joel's world is what we say. Whenever anyone refers to Joel and Muslim, we just call it Joel's world. It's hard to, it's hard to nail down what he does but he's someone with uh, an ever-changing like a very solid vision but within these parameters his ideas are ever-changing so in rehearsal you know we think we're going to do one thing and then we do something completely different and I know for the album it took him months and months and months to conceive of you know how it was all going to be produced and, and mixed and you know who was overdubbing this and that and what sections are we going to take out and, and I think he did surgery on that album like from A to Z so you know yeah but uh but he's he's a really interesting guy yeah i wanted to ask about the music scene in montreal and toronto well in canada in general how easy is it or otherwise is it for people like yourself and joel to find an audience i mean because i know that you know nowadays the whole music scene in general is completely changed over the last 20 30 years you know digital distribution people finding audiences in different ways do you find that you have to collaborate a lot with people to keep working or do you find that audiences naturally gravitate to what you do how have things changed for you in recent years I mean, it's, it's true that, I mean, if you're not touring, you're really not making any money. There are still people that will buy hard copies, which is, I think, why people like myself and, and other independents, I guess you might call us, you know, are still spending our hard-earned money to put out CDs, you know, and, and to have merchandise at the shows and things like that. I guess what's changed is just that there are just less people buying the music, the physical copies. It's tough because if you don't have someone booking shows for you, and that's always been the case for me in, in general, you know, I've, I've really never had anyone aside from a few isolated cases you know, booking my own projects so so in the past you know I'd book but I would I would sort of bank on being able to sell a whole crap load of CDs you know at shows and things like that and so people are less inclined to buy hard copy now you know I'm always pleasantly surprised or often pleasantly surprised anyway at the jazz fest I guess we put on a good show that day and I sold all of the, the CDs that I brought down to the, the shop at the festival so that that made my day and on top of having played a really nice show I guess a lot of people are just learning to be really internet savvy. I'm not so internet savvy. I really need to, as we were talking about a few weeks ago, just about updating my Bandcamp page and things like that. And I've been busy doing other things. But, you know, it's it's a lot to, to take care of. And if you're not treating it like your full-time job, in addition to playing the music and trying to write the music and do interviews and things like this, then it's, uh, it's easy for there to be loose ends. And so that's, I think, just often what happens. And so, I mean, Joel is, is in a slightly better position than I am. He does have a 
a booking agent and he has a label and so he's he's got a bit of a team behind him and so I'm happy to be able to to be part of that project not only for the music but also because we, we get to do some touring you know and, and have someone kind of making sure we get from one hotel to the next and all that stuff so do you find that you do get booked to play with other artists either your own music as a support often enough or to collaborate with them on their projects like a constant do you find you have a constant stream yeah, it goes in spurts I mean I had a really good summer you know I I, did, I toured with Joel out west and played our show at the festival and then did several shows with Best Nancy and Elder Jazz and so we were able to play my material there as well as the Sweet Christine Sweet you know so for me that's like a good summer mm-hmm. you know it's never I'm I'm not one of these people that's that's touring you know two thirds of the year or something like that I mean uh, I would love to to do that and uh, it's you know I just don't think it's going to happen so to offset my I guess financially you know to be able to cover all of my costs I do a lot of teaching um, which I like doing too I like sharing what I've learned along the way with with young people and and so for for three years I was uh, commuting between Toronto and Montreal that's a that's a five-hour train ride each way so that was an every week kind of affair and uh so i was teaching at two schools there and two schools in montreal and this year i decided to uh, to stop that madness <laughs> and <laughs> whittle down to two schools only and focus on one city one province so you know i'm going to keep my fingers crossed that that's all going to work out and and i just bought a house to help with my dad over here <laughs> <laughs> out in rural quebec an hour from montreal up in the mountains and i'm looking forward to actually kind of connecting with the community up there as well and, and maybe even getting into putting on some house concerts and, and uh, hosting retreats at the place and just sort of making that a bit of a hub for culture and, and art and uh, other sorts of conversation. So I'm, I guess I'm just, you know, I, I many, I don't know if you want me to go on about this. I'll just, as a final note of that, I'll just say that, you know, I guess about 10 years ago, I just decided to stop pining about it so much. I used to, and Dad can attest to this, I used to call and cry my eyes out about the, the whole damn thing and and I, it, it still happens sometimes where you, it's really easy to get discouraged but i think it's much easier on my on my soul and my body and everything to just kind of take what comes and be thankful for what it is and to just do my best sort of get myself out of that place of suffering and hope all the time i mean it's it sounds maybe it sounds negative to not have hope but i found it's better just to kind of live in the moment and be excited about what's coming along it works better for me anyway and i guess i'm in a in a good position because I do straddle the fence between the pop music thing and the jazz thing and, and have, I guess, made my made a name for myself as a lyricist as well as a vocalist. So that keeps lots of different doors open. Mm. You mentioned lyrics there, and I'm going to ask a question which I probably should have thought to ask earlier on. Do a lot of the songs that you write reflect events in your life. So like I'm, I'm listening to songs on Ice Age Paradise like you know, Cold and Your Eyes and you mentioned before Boat Afloat and Ocean and Blind mm-hmm. Spot which you know, are fairly dark thematically and I know a lot of great songwriters will take something that they know about or maybe in their lives and are able to turn it into art in a way without sort of like feeling like they're beating up a wall. It's you know less about mm-hmm. catharsis and just taking something and turning it into art. Is this just the songwriter in you or forgive my prying, is it something in, in your own life that you're writing about in those songs?
yeah, I would say that that 90% of them are autobiographical in some way, you know, whether that involves me directly or, or friends of mine and, and, and I decide to write about their stories, you know. But there have been cases like you, you quoted Carrie uh, a few minutes ago from Verkla, the last tune on Verkla, and that person or that figure or that song, you know, the subject matter is completely fictional. I don't know where that came from. Um, and I just went for it. You know, Drifting Daydream is the same. So in, in, in some cases, the, you could call it fiction. In most cases, it's nonfiction. <laughs> I, I try not to make the songs sound like, a, you know, journal entries, the ones that are really personal to me. Which is, which is an art unto itself. That's yes. what makes a great songwriter. It wasn't always like that, of course. But uh, if you do enough analyzing of yourself and, and uh, listening to people who do it well, and hopefully you'll come out somewhere you know, somewhere in between and, and learn a little bit about the art of, of, of not pouring all of your heart and soul out onto the page. So, it's, you know, it just makes people feel uncomfortable listening to it or something. <laughs> you need a certain amount of detachment. I mean, the song about my mother, I mean, that was also because it was, the, the event was just too, it just had such an impact on me that I wasn't able to exteriorize anything about it. But I really wanted to make sure that I took a good amount of time before I sat down to try and write anything about my mother. See? Je pouvais jouer tendre, jouer tendre, jouer tendre. Si je pouvais jouer tendre, à cette journée, je lui dirais. About her passing, and, and because otherwise, I think that it, it, I probably would have, I wouldn't have been happy with the result after the fact. In hindsight, I would have thought this is just, this just sounds too schmaltzy or something. So, look, I guess I better just finish up with asking, what do you have planned for over the next twelve months? Do you have anything planned over the next twelve months from either a songwriting or recording perspective, or a big project that you're working on with someone else? Well, I got a small grant recently to, I was just telling my dad, um, to write canons for choir in French. And there's a canon on Verkla. I don't know if you uh, noticed that Sangin is a, is a canon. Okay, no, I hadn't, hadn't picked that up. So I, I thought, you know, why not delve into that a little bit? And also in, with the idea and keeping, you know, paring things down a little bit, and maybe, maybe going, you know, just sort of exploring the voice on a deeper level and working with other singers. So that was part of the reason I applied for that and, and came up with that idea. So I'll be, I guess I'll be writing some canons over the next little while. I've got more shows with the Orchestre National de Jazz throughout the fall and winter. And I'm also going to be, I haven't even started thinking about how I'm going to put that together, but I'm going to be trying to tour the Ice Age repertoire in Western Canada in the winter. So I have a gig in late January in Edmonton at the Yardbird Suite, which is a really lovely jazz club in Edmonton, Alberta. 
and I'm not even sure who I'm playing with. I have to get on that and, and find out. I would love actually to work with just a local ensemble and try and put the repertoire together with a rehearsal and bring those arrangements and that music to Western Canada. So so that's something I'll work towards. And then I'm, I have a few shows with a guy named Jeff Kressla that I've worked with uh, in the past. First with Mike Rudd. He's a guitarist that I actually won a Juno with. And the Juno is sort of Canada's Grammy. Yes, yes, of Yes. And so I didn't write any of the music on that album uh, or the lyrics, but I sang the music and we won for the Vocal Jazz Album of the Year. So I guess it was a real collaborative effort that way. But Mike had his music arranged by one band, I think, on the prairies in Canada. And so that's the other thing that made me think, oh, I'd love to do the same thing with my music, you know, and it worked out. But Jeff Preslaff was one of the guys that we met uh, and he arranged some of Mike's music for a large ensemble. And I met him again this past summer. I was teaching at a jazz camp in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I had written some lyrics for one of his tunes last winter. And he said, oh, why don't you try and pen some more lyrics for a couple of my tunes? And if you do so, I can try and put some shows together for us. So I'm going to pair house concerts with him and his and my music, this show in Edmonton, late January, early February. So I guess that's the short-term plan. So you're keeping Uh, fairly busy. I'm getting very busy, and, and I've got a, a whole roster of, of teaching that's going to start in, in a week's time. I'll be diving into that. I'll be teaching people, uh, I guess, four days a week. And the rest of the time, I'll be out trying to winterize my house so that we don't freeze to death and the pipes don't burst. We never get it that cold down here, so you have my sympathy for having to put that much work <laughs> in so you can survive the winter. Yes, I wish we could share a bit of it with you, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite happy to just wake up and find, mm, I need to wear a new pair of socks. That's as bad as it gets. <laughs> oh, gosh. One day, one day I have to visit that lovely Yes, well, well, every northern hemispherian I meet says the same thing, but only a small percentage of you do. So make sure, make sure you come and make sure you bring a large ensemble or pick up one here. Oh, we've got to work on that. Yeah, I'll do what I can. <laughs> Finally, how can people who've been listening to this episode of the show actually listen to your music? How can, where can they purchase your music from? Uh, they can if they google sienna Dolan. well maybe you can put a link to it i will my, definitely put a link to it yes absolutely so okay that would be awesome if but if they if they just google my full name um and i think you at this point have to type in ice age paradise to come to the Bandcamp page which is really annoying um but you can uh hear the music that way and i'd say that's probably the best way otherwise you can go onto my website which is just siennadollin.com and there's some some samples there and if you want to check out my dad's artwork at the same time oh no no that's lane.com this is your gig (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lane I will be putting a link on the website to your artwork as well because I have to say to the listeners I was looking up Lane that's uh, Sienna's father looking up at his artwork on the website and it is truly magnificent I'm not just the American expression is blowing smoke the Australian expression is pissing in your pocket i'm not doing either of those things <laughs> the artwork is really really wonderful so i'm going to be putting a link in the show notes please click on it and go have a look at lane's work it really in some ways continues the the wintry theme that's that musically that you're conveying that's right and they can hear venezia on his website and they right. can hear his other music there too right. so right. You know, it's like uh, you can't right. lose well thank, thank you very much but tell them not to dig too deeply uh, <laughs> oh, no in fact i'm going to tell them right now dig very 
very deeply. <laughs> dig deep. Dig long and dig deep. Uh, so people can, but people can order CDs or, or downloads or whatever it is the kids do nowadays. That's right. They want vinyl. They want CDs. They want T-shirts. They want bags. All of that I can send to them across the miles. Vergla is a bit easier to find. Perhaps, you know, record stores, at least in Canada it is. But um, it was distributed worldwide, I believe, or at least in the States and, and in Canada with distribution in Canada. But Ice Age Paradise, yeah, you just write to me and I'll send you off copy if that's the way you like to go. And otherwise, it's on a bunch of digital sites, you know, out there. Thanks very much, Sienna and Lane, for your time. Okay. Uh, listeners, I hope you've really enjoyed the conversation and the music you've been hearing. We'll be back a couple of minutes uh, just to uh, close off the show. But you'll be listening to Sienna and Lane Darlin here on the Love That Album, episode 103. Thanks very much, guys. Thank Thanks you. so much, Maurice. leader. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator.
Hello everyone, it's Eric. I am back with an album I love segment. I was looking for something to pair up with this month's guest, Sienna Dolan. Please forgive me if I mispronounced your name. When I checked out her music, what I heard was kind of jazzy, classic American songbook style, dark gothic country. And so, of course, my mind went to outlaw country, and then from there it went to Carla, and I'm going to mispronounce her last name, Bozulich, who I first heard on the Mike Watt uh, solo album from the 90s, uh, Tugboat or Root Hog, where she provided the main vocals on Drove Up to Pedro. She had a history with other bands, including the Geraldine Fibbers, the Evangelistas, and Ethel Meatplow. There's some names you never thought you were going to hear on Love That Album. But it is her cover of Willie Nelson's The Red-Headed Stranger album, which Willie actually appears on for two tracks, that I thought of for this episode. For those of you who don't know, The Red-Headed Stranger was Willie's album from, I believe, 74. It's one of his early 70s albums where he was starting to buck the trends in Nashville. He recorded this very sparse album, just him and a guitar, and maybe a few players that he had picked. He took it into the record company and thought, oh, it's a nice demo. He's like, no, that's the record. It was a artistic statement. Love that album. Listeners may think of it as being maybe the 70s version of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. It's a concept album. It tells the story of the red-headed stranger and he comes into town. It's got a lot of threads to it I don't necessarily understand. I haven't unpacked. It's an album that I have not listened to a lot, unfortunately, but it's one of those mythic kind of albums you keep coming back to. In this case, we have the album as covered by a woman with a woman's voice and a woman's perspective. There's a lot of gender roles that that are below the surface in the, the record to begin with. In fact, there was another record recorded recently, let me look here, in the last year or two by an artist calling herself Mama Cole. That's the Raven-Haired Vixen, which is kind of her answer record to the Red-Headed Stranger. It's another record that I have uh, yet to unpack and to truly explore. But, but there's something about this idea, and there's something about the interplay of the male point of view and the female point of view when it comes to this record and this material. As much as the record is a western, a true country western that seems to be set in the 1890s, like anything else that is set out of time, it's really about the era that it was recorded in. But enough of my prattling on, let's check out some of the music.
Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain cover of the great song, great classic country song, was the big hit for Willie off this album, so it should be fitting that we would uh, check that one out in this review. should be said that one of the interesting things about this album is the mixture of the classic 70s Americana with some electronica and some Middle Eastern sounds in the music. You know, that kind of experimentation was something that happened quite a bit in the 90s. Some of it was good, some of it wasn't. In this case, I think it works. So I've said, this is an album I'm still unpacking, that I'm still listening to every once in a while, trying to absorb. It's not an album that I necessarily want to drink straight down and play to death. It's, it's haunting and mythic, and there is the juxtaposition of so many things about uh, music of the era that it was made, not just on the record, but in the history of the album. So we're going to go out with a little bit of the last track from the album, Bandera. Catch you all next time. and music. Join Morris, Tim and Bernie every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast.
far out. Out, out. out. Thanks so much, Eric, for another wonderful album I love segment. And he'll be back next month with both a compilation edition and another AIL segment for the main show. Hope you've enjoyed listening to the chat that I had with Sienna Darlin and her father Lane. And hope that you go and check out the websites and order a copy of the album if you so enjoyed the music that you've heard and hopefully you have you can either download the album from Bandcamp so you can order it as mp3s or whatever the download format is it might be FLAC for high resolution if you prefer that or if like me you're a physical media guy then you can email her at the address that she gave in the interview which I think was Sienna Darlin at gmail dot com look for the spelling in the name of this podcast so what is it that we've got planned for next month well truth is i don't know yet so you'll just have to keep on checking the facebook group to find out what it is that i might have planned it's late august and i'm feeling like in a little bit of a whirl at the moment so not really sure what i have planned but hopefully i'll have something interesting to talk about with someone who's interesting to talk to if you wish to get in contact with me you can either email me at r kitchen at yahoo.com.au or you can join the Facebook group called facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash love that album you can join in and discuss whatever it is that you like about music your favorite album a musician who you met anything that's of interest to your all-time top 10 guitar solos the state of the music world at the moment is there too much commerciality your favorite independent singers Anything you like, anything music related, the group is there for you to utilize. If you have any ideas for future albums to discuss or people to speak to, then please contact me. Either I might take it up or I might say to you, hey, would you like to do a show under the Love That Album banner? More than happy for you to record it and I'll put it up because it means I get a month off. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I love doing this, but also willing to let other people have their say. And, you know, you might sort of find, I like this podcasting lark, but the idea of doing it every month just seems a little bit much. Well, this is a way to dip your toe in the water. You have something to say about music that you like or an album that you like. I'm more than happy for you to record a show and we'll distribute it under the Love That Album banner. Always happy to support other people's opinions about music. All right, that is it for episode 103 of Love That Album. And once again, keep a lookout on the Facebook page to work out what it is that I will do for September's episode. That will be episode 104. Or better yet, just subscribe to the show through the podcast catcher of your choice and it'll just download straight into your preferred device for listening. And it'll just be there for you to listen to and enjoy when the time comes along. So until next month, please be nice to each other. Please be good to each other. What the world needs now is love, rebellion, fighting the good fight, being nice to each other, and patting your kitty cat or your dog, your domestic pet of choice. All the best. Till next month. Cheers.